There are some statements that summarize biblical truth in a way for us that is really helpful. There are particular ways of saying things that can serve to combine both truth and hope and kind of put them together. I believe that my last sermon at my previous church, or my last sermon series rather, was on the book of Galatians. And in the course of that study, I ran into a commentary written by Dr. Phil Riken, who's now the president of Wheaton College. And he made a statement in that commentary that was revolutionary for me in terms of its distillation of biblical truth. Here's what he said. Christians live by promise, not performance. Just let that sink in for a moment. Christians live by promise, not performance. The reason that's important is because all week long, all week, we have all lived in a realm where performance matters. And here we are, and we're reflecting on a different value set. A value set that comes out of Galatians chapter two where the apostle Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We gather on the Lord's day to be reminded, I don't live by performance, I live by promise. I don't live by what I do, I live by who I am in Christ. I don't live by my achievements, my accomplishments, the amount of money that I have in my bank, the titles or degrees in front of my name or behind my name. I don't live in light of what people think of me or what I want them to think of me. I live in the promise of who I am in Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. Sadly though, this performance reality can create a vicious cycle that leads to hiding or to blame. Hiding and blame, that's where performance leads. In the Garden of Eden, we find the sin of Adam and Eve and we see their response. They hide from God. They failed, so they hid. And then when God finds them, they suddenly jump into the blame game. Adam blames Eve and blames God. When God says to him, who told you you were naked? He said, the woman who you gave me. (laughs) Eve blames the serpent. And really what's happening there is the malfunction of their performance mindset leads them to despair and disillusionment. Hiding eventually leads to shame and blame eventually leads to anger because we're running on the treadmill of our performance. So rather than living on promise, we retreat, we run away, or we find resentment. Isaiah 40 is an Old Testament text about living on promise. It's a chapter that sets the tone for part two of this historic book. We're making a turn. And Isaiah 40 is an Old Testament invitation to see the healing combination of living 
through promise and then assurance and then hope. So if in the last week you are just sick and tired of shame and blame, if you're weary of the performance treadmill that you find yourself on, if you found yourself looking in the mirror and realizing, I failed again, can I welcome you to the household of God where your worth is not dependent on your performance, your worth is directly related to the promise of who you are in Jesus. And Isaiah 40, helps us to see this, that we live by promise and then assurance and then hope. And so if you're here today and you're weary, let's just spend some time thinking of what Isaiah 40 tells us about how to live. First, we see the promise in verses one through 11. The text begins with assurance, promise-oriented, compassionate words. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. This, this opening section in verses one through 11 help us to see the connection between God's love for his people and who he is as their God. In other words, listen to this, God's love for his people is not conditioned on who they are, it's conditioned on who he is. So helpful. Why is Isaiah writing this way? Well, from chapter 39 to chapter 40, a lot has happened. You don't see it in your Bible, but what has taken place is we've moved from part one to part two, from God calling people to turn from their idols to repent, and now in the second section to believe. Circumstances have changed. The first 39 chapters were calling Israel and Judah to turn from their trust in foreign nations, to turn from their trust in their idols, and to believe that God could rescue them while the political pressure and the environment around them was just getting all-encompassing and Assyria was a threat. God invites them to, to trust in him. And in 722, the kingdom of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And then, in 586, the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. Remember Isaiah 39, when we were last in this book, it ended with the prophet Isaiah rebuking King Hezekiah because of his foolishness of giving a gold key tour to a group of Babylonian ambassadors. That was the eighth century, and Isaiah 40 through 55 are written in the, about the sixth century. They're written about what's going to happen well after Isaiah died. Some scholars think that chapters 40 through 55 are written by a different author, or others think that his disciples collected the writings of Isaiah and then put them together. It seems to me that given the introduction of the book and how even Jesus cites the book of Isaiah, there's no reference to an additional author. I think what's happening here is Isaiah was the author, but he's looking forward in a prophetic way to what's going to happen when he writes and it actually becomes true and God's people receive these words when they so desperately needed them. Just prior to Isaiah 40, is the invasion of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the 70-year exile of God's people. So for 70 years, they were displaced. And what happens to human beings when they're displaced, when they feel like exiles, they become disillusioned. They're hurting, they're grieving, and as a result, they begin to question, is what I believe even real? 
It seemed as though the God of Israel had lost. And it seemed as though the God of Babylon had won. And so the people of Israel begin to think in their minds, is Marduk, the God of Babylon, really more powerful than Yahweh? They begin to wonder, because if he's, if he's really all-powerful, if God is really all-powerful, then how in the world could Jerusalem have been sacked and the temple be destroyed and the nation isn't even a nation anymore? We're spread out all over the kingdom. In the middle of those painful circumstances, the prophet Isaiah says this to God's people, O Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? The reason he says this, church, is because the people of God are saying this. Some of you have said this this week. It sounds like, God, you don't, don't you see what's happening? Why are you letting this take place? Don't you care? You need to know that every Christian faces moments when they feel spiritually defeated. Every Christian wrestles through moments when they feel disillusioned with God. Every Christian wrestles with moments when they wonder, I don't get this, and I'm struggling here. Maybe you're there right now. Some issue in your life has caused you to wonder what in the world, God, what are you doing and why won't you do anything and are you even real? I hope Isaiah 40 encourages you. Some of you, the most gutsy thing you've done all week is come to church because you're here and you're seeing words and you're like, I wish I could believe that but I really don't today. Friend, welcome to church. It's okay. Texts like Isaiah 40 are for you. Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly. Her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God was disciplining the nation because of her waywardness and everything's about to change. In verses three to five, we see the promise of the coming glorious transformation. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Those of you who know the New Testament, the gospel writer Luke cites this text in reference to the ministry of John the Baptist. The idea is that the spiritual restoration that's going to come because of the reign of Christ. It means that everything hard and broken is going to be changed. So things that make travel difficult, valleys make travel difficult, mountains make travel difficult, valleys are gonna be lifted up, mountains are gonna be brought low. Everything hard and broken and challenging is gonna be changed and the glory of God will be on full display. Ray Ortland says this, He's talking about depression being relieved, pride being flattened, troubled personalities becoming placid, and difficult people becoming easy to get along with. In other words, it is that the world will one day be the way it was supposed to be when the glory of God covers the earth like the water covers the sea. Now you need to know that's a day yet to come. It's not yet. We get little glimpses of it. 
The Apostle John said that when they saw Jesus, they got a glimpse of it. It says, we saw his glory, and he was full of grace and truth. When they saw Jesus, there was something about him, something that whet their appetites for what was yet to come. And I want you to know that when we gather together on the Lord's Day, when we sing and when we hear God's word and we're reminded about what's true and promises that are underneath our life and we see other people that believe the same thing and we feel love and affection for one another, every Sunday is a little taste of the glory of God that is yet to come. In verses 6 through 11, we find another promise that the word of our God will stand forever. While everything else is unstable, everything's changing, everything's fleeting, everything's temporary, everything's frail, what he's saying here is God's word is not. Look at the text. The voice cries, what shall I say? All flesh is grass, its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Verse eight, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Therefore, verse nine, go up. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not and say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd and gather the little lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So there are promises in this text. Here they are. They are that God will come with might. They will, the promise is that God will rule. The, question, the issue here is God will rule and bring justice. The promise is that God will guide his people. The promise is that God will have compassion. So just stop for a moment. Look at this list. Let me ask you, which promise do you need right now? Do you need to be reminded that God is mighty in your life? Do you need to be reminded that God is going to rule? Do you need to be reminded that God is going to bring justice? Do you need to be reminded that he will guide you? Do you need to be reminded that God will bring compassion? Look at the promise. And be reminded that the essence of what it means to be a Christian is to live by those promises. The Christian life is lived by promise. We hear the Bible, we see what it says, and we say, that's true. Praise God. The second thing is the issue of assurance. So we need to know the promises. What promise do you need to believe today, Christian? And then the promise is only good as the one who is making it. For instance, if I say to you, Church, I promise you that the Colts are going to win the Super Bowl this year. That's a kind of promise, but I have no ability to fulfill it. If I say to you, I promise this sermon is not going to be longer than 35 minutes, that may be a promise that I historically am not able to keep very well, but I have the power to do something about it. In one case, I can control it. In the other, I can't. Isaiah's point in this section is to remind the people about the power of the creator. He aims here to elevate their view of God so they can feel some level of assurance. They need reminders 
You and I need reminders, not just about the promise, but about the promise maker, the promise keeper. And so therefore, Isaiah asks some rhetorical questions. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, all of you have a hand. Why don't you take your hand out and just look at it a moment. So the hollow of your hand is the spot right here. And what Isaiah is saying, imagine all of the waters of the earth, all of them. And the idea is they all fit right in the hollow of God's hand. The text goes on, keep your hand out. It says, he's marked off the heavens with a span. The span was the distance between your pinky and your thumb. It's how people used to measure things. Span, 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 it's three spans. So the distance between pinky and thumb, mine's a little longer than most of yours, but that's okay. So in this case, the whole of the whole universe, he says it fits between the span of God's pinky and his thumb. He then says, he's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? In other words, it's like the apostle Paul says, who's ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid? Who's ever told him something? Who's ever prayed to God and God was like, ah, thank you. I, we didn't know that was happening. No one. He says, whom did he consult and whom made, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is, of course, no one. And then he says, behold, the nations, all of the nations are like a drop from a bucket. God's carrying a bucket and a little drop falls out. And he says, all of the nations and all of their power and all of their glory is like a little drool spot from a bucket that's dripping down the side. I don't even know what that means, but I'm really encouraged by it. I'm learning, I'm getting there, all right? All right, all right. So with all of the nations are accounted as dust. He, he takes up the, go, the coastlands like fine dust. It's like lint on a garment and God brushes the nations away. Lebanon, a, a nation full of huge, humongous cedars, would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are nothing before him and are accounted by him as less than nothing, less as nothing and emptiness. What's he saying? He's saying this. Think of the things that make you afraid. Think of the things that you believe are powerful. Think of the things that make you anxious. Think of the things that cause you to react. And what Isaiah is saying, God holds all of those in the very palm of his hand. One of the reasons he uses this is because human beings understand power. Nations have power. Lebanon had a lot of trees. The ocean is vast and untamable. But what he's saying here is your God is greater. Some of you need to hear that today. I know, I know your boss is powerful. I know the economy for you is hard. I, I know the reality of your family dynamics are challenging. I know whatever it is that's in your life that is deeply concerning, like legitly those things are scary. But you need to know there's a God who reigns over all. 
And the challenge is, is if we're not careful, we'll end up turning to things that we think are gonna give us control. And the Bible calls those idols, which is why he says, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. And then he is too, who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. The idea is this, in order to gain control, you create things in order to feel like you control those realities. But what you've done is you've created your own false god. We make an idol, listen, we make idols because we want an, an assurance that we think they bring to us. For instance, when you say things like this, I need blank in order to feel safe. I need to know blank or I'll never be fulfilled. I need blank so that I can be happy. See, we, we put things into those blanks and the problem is, we can put good things in those blanks, but we put those things in those blanks in order to give us some semblance of assurance, and the trap of idolatry is the very thing that we set out to control ends up controlling us. Which is why Isaiah says, behold your God. Assurance comes from understanding and valuing who God is. That's why Isaiah asks the questions that he does, like in verse 21, he says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sets above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. The idea is that Isaiah wants you to see the beauty of all of what God has done and, 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 and what he has created. Verses 25 through 26, Isaiah invites us to look up at the sky. Verse 23, he talks about princes that he brings to nothing, rulers of the earth, there is emptiness to him. Scarcely are they planted, verse 24, scarcely sown, scarcely are there, has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Before we get to verse 25, just wanna remind you, God sets up kings and takes them down. Some of you are spending so much time being concerned about what's going on in culture and you should be concerned about going on, what's going on in culture, but you spent so much time that if we take how much time you spent on social media and watching the news and how much time you spent reading the Bible, it's no wonder you're filled with anxiety. You're letting the media shape your understanding of the world. You're not letting God shape the, your understanding of the world. So maybe just balance it out a little bit. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Verse 26, lift up your eyes and see who created these, who brings their host out by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. In other words, he's like, come outside, come outside, come outside. Look up, look at the stars. Or right now, I mean, this is like the best time in the world to live in Indiana. Like there's a couple months a year where it's like not cool to live here, but this is a great time to live in Indiana because like this is my drive home. Like I'm driving home the other day and yes, I took this, picture while driving, please forgive me, Lord. Um, but Because <laughs> I was so enamored with the colors. You need to go outside and to realize the God who created that, he, 
He's in control of your life. Isaiah, in effect, says God is so strong that he knows every star by name. Nothing gets lost in the universe. You know, our, our solar system is, is called the Milky Way, and this galaxy that we live in is shaped like a spiral, a gigantic pinwheel, says Ray Ortland. It's spinning in the open expanse of space within our solar system and rotating around the center once every million years or so, and we, here on Earth, in the Milky Way, lie about two-thirds of the way out from the center of the galaxy. We live in, you can think of it, Galaxy Boondocksville. The Milky Way is 104,000 light years across. It contains over 100 billion stars. And to count them one by one would take us 3,000 years. And according to the most recent research related to the Hubble Telescope Project, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in God's universe. Look at the stars. In effect, Isaiah is saying this, listen, if God is so strong that he knows every star by name, and if nothing gets lost in his universe, then when life is scary, when it's hard, and when it's fearful, it's vital to live on performance, and when, or promise, excuse me, and when performance has gotten the best of you, through either your sin or your inability, you can still live on promise, look to the stars, and to be reminded, the same God that knows all about this, knows everything about my life, he's got it. You may be listening to this message today, and truth be told, you don't live on promise because you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You're living on this perpetual treadmill of trying to fulfill the aching and the longing of your heart. Maybe you're running from the failures of the past or trying to find fulfillment in the things you do or who you love or how you feel. And it may just be that right now in the very reality of your own brokenness and the hardship of your life, you're finding that your relationship with your creator isn't right. You don't have assurance because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And friend, I wanna invite you today that, there, that there's another way to live. I invite you to come off the treadmill of trying to perform every day so you can balance the scales of divine justice. That's a terrible way to live. It'll ruin you. It won't just ruin you in this lifetime, it'll ruin you for eternity because right now, you and God aren't right and you know it. And the way that you get right with God is understanding you're God, I'm not. You're holy, I'm not holy and I need a savior to cleanse me of my sin. Why not come to Jesus today and start a new path of your life that means you live on promise, not performance. If you're a Christian, can I just remind you, this is how we live. The same God who created all the stars in the universe is the same God who created you. He put you where you are, gave you the gifts that he's given you, put you in the family that you're in, put you in this moment in global and church history. He hasn't made a mistake. And the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is worthy of your trust. So talk to him. Sing to him. Read about him. Consider him. He's made promises, and he has the receipts. He's got a lot of receipts. The Christian life is lived by promise, it's lived by assurance, and then finally it's lived by hope. Verse 27, Isaiah says to the people of God, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Here's what they say. Again, this, this, this important text. Why do you say, my way is hidden? 
My right is disregarded. Eugene Peterson, I love his paraphrase. Eugene Peterson has been a great help to me in the last 18 months. To be honest, there were a few weeks in 2020 and 2021 where it was nearly impossible for me to read the Bible on my own. I would read it, it's just really flat. And I needed someone like Eugene Peterson to speak God's word to me. Here's how he translates this text. God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. You ever felt that way? I sure have. I bet you have too. And yet notice what Isaiah does. He pulls them back to who God is and what God is like. Isaiah doesn't provide assurance in who they are. No, 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 no. He points to assurance in terms of what they already know but need to be reminded about, that God rules everything, that God doesn't get tired, that he's working out his plan. He says this, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. And here's the money text in this verse, in this whole passage, whole chapter right here. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What Isaiah is saying here, church, is we not only don't live by performance, we also don't live by explanation. We don't live by promise or by, by performance. I'm going to do this. We also don't live by explanation. This needs to make sense to me. Some of us pursue control by what we do. Others of us pursue control by what we know. And what Isaiah suggests is the solution is to wait for the Lord. To wait for the Lord. The problem with the word waiting is you, I would assume, have a negative bias towards that word. For some of you, you approach waiting for the Lord like you consider waiting in the BMV. <laughs> I hate this. I don't want to do this. This is going to be annoying and difficult. That's not the kind of waiting that God has in mind. The trouble is, is that some of us, we, we see ourselves in the waiting room of the BMV as it relates to God. That's not the kind of waiting. The kind of waiting that he has in mind is the waiting of a groom for the bride to appear. I get to stand next to a lot of grooms. And if I turn to him and said, hey man, what you doing here? He's like, man, I'm waiting. Some of us need to realize where we are in the story. You're acting like your whole life is stuck in a waiting room, waiting for a ticket and a number to be called. And the reality is you're waiting for your bride to come. You're waiting for the anticipation of God's fulfillment of his promises. 
The fact of the matter is, is we're waiting and we're waiting with eagerness. Some of you, five years from now, you're gonna look back on the season of your life and you're gonna have an amazing story to tell. And you'll tell the story, like I, this was hard, I was in the moment, it was very difficult, but now I see where God is and, and what he was doing. And what I want you to do is to be able to take all of that future and pull it in now so that when someone says, how are you doing? You can say, you know what, I'm waiting on the Lord. And it's not, oh, I'm so sorry, it's I'm waiting on the Lord. Because when God answers, it's gonna be amazing. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. I don't know the future. I don't even know what to do next. But what I do know is this, I'm waiting on a God who can be trusted. And Israel needed to hear this because they were exiled. It looked like God had lost. It seemed like he had abandoned them. It felt as though God wasn't around anymore. And Isaiah says, comfort, comfort to my people. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. So church, to wait means that we place our hope in the promises of God, not in our performance, not our expectations, and not some explanation as to what God is doing. And there is freedom when you know that you can't do it, but you know somebody who can. Isaiah 40 is written to bring comfort to you, to show you the path of promise and assurance and hope. This text means to emblaze two truths on your heart. Church, behold your God and wait for him. Because waiting is how we live on promise, not on performance. We are waiting. We are waiting. We are waiting. We are waiting. because we believe. Lord Jesus, help us. Sometimes the waiting is so hard and painful and difficult. Sometimes it's so discouraging and disillusioning in terms of how many questions we have and the hardship that we have to endure. And Lord, I just would imagine there's a lot of people who know the hardship of what it means to wait for the Lord. So would you grant them grace even now to see the problems of their life in the very palm of your hand, to realize that you hold the universe between the expanse of your fingers, that you can be trusted. So give us a view of you today that satisfies the aches, the longings, and the hurts of our hearts. Lord, we wait upon you because we can trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.